Hey, it's Jeff. A few items before we begin. First, my next book of quotes, Hugh Manifestations on Trauma, Truth, and Transformation is ready to rumble and looks like it'll be available for pre-order in the coming weeks. The current published date is May 30th, 2023. So look for it. Uh, kind of sister book to my fourth quotes book, Articulations. Author Mirabai Starr had this to say upon reading Humanifestations. Quote, when Jeff Brown dares to speak truth about our spiritual lives, the curtain that's been covering the wizard comes tumbling down and we recognize that it's just a dude with his fingers on the controls of our souls, and we are emboldened to take back our sovereignty and lament and praise with the whole of our authentic, broken, open hearts. This little book is a loose thread. Pull it. Close quote. I love that. Pull it. And for those interested in exploring writing as a healing practice, or a spiritual practice, or as a calling. My next Writing Your Way Home course is coming up at soulshapinginstitute.com on April 11th. We will add a link in the show notes. In the following conversation, I speak with Erica Spiegelman, a fine author in her own right. Erica is a wellness specialist, recovery counselor, podcast host, wellness media contributor, and author of the new book, 101 Affirmations for Addiction and Recovery, a Practical Guide for Self-Empowerment, a collection of recovery-focused affirmations designed to provide a framework for developing positive self-talk habits. She's also written The Rewired Life, The Rewired Workbook, and The Rewired Coloring Book, all published by Hatherley Press. It's a whole lot of rewiring to explore for those who are interested. Erica also holds a bachelor degree in literature from the University of Arizona and is a California State Certified Drug and Alcohol Counselor. For more information, you can check out her website at ericaspiegelman.com. That'll be in the show notes, too. I was interested in speaking with Erica for a number of different reasons. Among them was her emphasis on affirmations, something that I have been very embracing of and also very rejecting of as practices at various times. And her emphasis on the value of rewiring our thinking, something I have also embraced and rejected on my journey. Not that I don't believe that it serves us to transform the way that we think, but I have tended to focus on somatic or body-centered healing as the road to a change in our thinking patterns. In other words, by clearing our emotional debris and integrating our parts, we shift who we are and this naturally influences our way of thinking. I wanted to hear Erica's story, both because I love stories of human overcoming and because I wanted to hear someone else's take on this important question. After all, there are as many paths to wholeness as there are humans on this planet. So let's begin the conversation with Trevor Hall before we do a deep dive into Erica's story. I know I need it. Uh, 
Jeff, Th- thanks for blessing us with your presence tonight. Yeah. I thought we would start with just just give us a sense of just tell us a bit about you. It just sort of, you know, you you came to this concept of rewired, which we'll talk about. Um, mm. What got you there? Um, what what did you have to overcome to get there? What did you have to birth to get there? And is it in any way a miracle that you're still here with us? Yes, for sure. I think I think I it is a miracle. Um I think my life could have gone a totally different direction. I got here basically because I felt spiritually dead at some point uh in my late 20s from alcohol use and addictive alcohol dependency and drinking a lot and you know, I grew up in a family. My parents divorced when I was 7 and I grew up in a family where I think, well, genetically, there's a predisposition for alcoholism. So my dad is a drinker, my grandfather's a drinker, and drinking wine at a young age, I was allowed to have a sip of wine at 13 years old. So it wasn't anything that was new or exciting for me. But I remember even at that age, the first sip I took, I felt the warmth go down my chest. And I even knew, even knew intuitively then, I thought to myself, hmm, I like this probably more than I should. And then I think too, from a social aspect, I attuned to kids, you know, I didn't have sports or anything going on after school. I attuned to some kids too that had divorced parents in the same situation going on. It's probably why we were drawn to each other. So we didn't have a lot of supervision. And at that age, you know, drinking and drugs and smoking and everything came into my life at that point. So I think for a brain that's not developed quite yet, and then all these emotional trials that go on at that age to begin with like the hormones and then what was going on at home it made for a kind of a perfect recipe to start to form a relationship with alcohol at least at that point and yeah it just it kind of took off from college went to a big party school you know at university of arizona in tucson it started to destroy my life where i to, to the point where now I was shaking in the morning. I really didn't know how to stop on my own. And my mom noticed and she asked me if I needed help and denied it and went through that whole stage for a couple of years. And then sooner or later, I just became so depressed and so hopeless and so stuck in chains that I really felt like I, I needed something out of, out of my own mind that was going to help me. And so I went to a treatment center and from there got sober and I've been sober ever since 15 years. So bi- biology, biological inclinations aside, um, I mean, when you look back, we'll, we'll move forward in a moment. Um, yeah. The psycho-emotional elements, say the source, mm-hmm. part of you that I presume didn't want to be here, wanted to alter your consciousness, mm-hmm. what was it within you that didn't want to be here? What did it feel like to be here independent of the alcohol during that period? What propelled you to want to get out of here in one form or another? Well, you know, I don't know if it was so much trying to escape per se, as I think I felt very maybe, you know, like it heightened things in a sense, you know, made things feel more alive when I think I felt a little bit yeah, I guess you're right. So that it is an escapism. I mean, just there, I didn't have a lot of encouragement to experience negative emotion when I was younger, you know, because I had young parents, they had me at 25 years old. And my dad still 
needs to work on his emotional intelligence, but any type of like negative crying, sadness, anger, even over their divorce was give her an ice cream, give her a dress, give her something, make it go away, make it stop, you know, only put on a smile. Everything's fine. Everything will be fine. And yes, everything was fine. And they were, they're the best parents. But at the same time, I think everybody needs to normalize the fact that you're going to have negative emotions around these events in your life and it's okay to feel. And I don't, I was never taught that. I was never taught it's okay to feel negative emotions you'll survive it it'll teach you you will get you know you will be better for it i never got those messages so for me there was a narrative that was created that you know if you show negative emotion no one's going to really love you or want to be around you let's just keep it happy so i think for me to be able to feel these heightened emotions from drinking like sadness putting on music writing in the middle of the night crying terribly because of this nostalgia of something that hasn't even been lost yet you know like what you the romantic side of drinking and drug use was something I fell in love with I thought you know but really what it was was just me allowing myself to feel these emotions in that way and so again I think that that's a lot of people confuse that as it helps me feel yeah it helps you feel but it's not real you know Right. So if I understand what you're saying, you, your parents were good parents in some ways, but not very good parents with respect to granting you permission to access, say, the shadow emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. And then you found another route to be able to access that way of feeling and way of being and way of releasing, which yeah. may have actually in some ways saved you emotionally. Yeah. But it wasn't an authentic, organic, natural, it was a self-destructive way of releasing yeah. emotion rather than a somatic and natural approach. Got right. it. So it became obvious that the period where you then began to feel very depressed and very discouraged, and very hopeless, um, mm-hmm. and even your mother noticed that, was yeah. that because of the physiological effect of the alcohol in your mm-hmm. system and on your liver, and or was that for some other reason? Well, the physiological effects, I think the the shakiness, you know, alcohol destroys your nervous system. And I, I always say, like, thank God that it was so noticeable physically for the people around me and and myself. Just you feel the shakiness inside, the anxiety inside, on top of the fact that you feel like you're betraying yourself every morning or that's how I felt. And the shame that goes on top of that, which really plummets you into kind of a depression. Yeah, the physiological aspects of it bloated couldn't sleep well. I mean, everything, but it was going on every day. So there's never time to catch up to, you know, in terms of good sleep, or there's never time to kind of get your life together. So not only was the physiological, but all the other aspects of my life were falling apart, got fired from a job because they smelled alcohol on me at one point, you know, and I'm 27 at the time. So this is, I was, I was young, fairly young, but it literally came in and just destroyed all those parts of my life was in a very abusive horrible relationship with somebody who was also an addict you know it's kind of like when you're vibrating on that level you're just going to keep attracting either the people or the kind of experiences that you're feeling like projecting outward so I felt like crap about myself I felt ashamed I felt also stuck I knew that there was a bigger purpose for me deep down in my soul since I was like three years old knew there was something more for me I knew it and so this experience it got me to such a, the lowest place I've ever been in my, in my life, you know, and God, you know, knock on wood, I will never get to, to that place again. But even in those moments, God, whoever it was that I was feeling and talking to, I, I kept saying, I know that there's more, I just know there's a way out. I think that's what kind of pushed me finally to just surrender in a sense and say, I need help. The part of you that knew that there was something more for you. I mean, I, we 
language for these things, like yeah. call that sacred purpose or soul scriptures or all kinds of things. But did it tell you what, what was in store for you, that what you were called to become in this lifetime? Was there were there any like textures or contours or shapes or forms to it? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this last night, actually. I, when I was a little girl, I used to lay in bed and I used to feel a void, like a void of a, of a big, dark room, like an endless, vast room. And I knew about death. And before someone taught me about death, I knew about death. And I would also think when I was little, we're not, I'm not going, I'm not going to be here one day. I mean, and I mean like three or four years old, I was even probably before I had a lot of language, it was just more of a, a feeling about that. And so I truly believe too, I've had like angels. I've, I've, I've had like weird things happen in my life that I think beyond coincidence, certain things. So, and I, and, and that went away as I, I got older, but as a child, I think I felt a lot of more feeling things than, than anything else. And I don't know how to describe it, but so with that, I think also I, I knew that I had a big purpose. That's all I could say. I had a purpose, you know, and I was meant to do something that was going to help or change. And, and also it's funny when I went into treatment, I just knew right then that the counseling was going to come. And, you know, I've always been someone people went to talk to or the middle person that always got involved in the middle. That wasn't always a great quality for other relationships, but I, it would, it still kind of gave me uh you know, a sense that that was meant to be too. Yeah. It sounds like you had sort of early life access to an awareness something bigger than your localized experience, but that also incorporated the idea that you had an intrinsic kind of directionality that was significant for your life. I mean, I often think that that early life, I had that as well in my very early life, for whatever reason, like a knowing we could call it or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that my experience has been, and in working with people for years, that people who've had that experience often can withstand all kinds of torrents and torments in their lives. They, you know, find their way off of that path because they just know there's something waiting for them on the other side. And people Mm -hmm. who've had nothing but torture and torment in early life often haven't had those glimpses, those glimmers of knowing. And so Mm -hmm. when the shit hits the fan, they just don't see any other way through that because they've never tasted from a different and a more gratifying and hopeful mm-hmm. consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. all the more reason to provide the space for that for little ones in the very early years, because mm-hmm. it's so important to mm-hmm. have that to come back to when life gets difficult because it will at some point. Yeah. It, no. So you went into treatment and then, and then what happened? I went into treatment and, you know, I mean, thank God for my mom and I, I had, you know, the most loving parents, by the way, and, and a loving extended family nothing but unconditional love my whole life. So just to, just to say that, but people still have their limitations, especially when you're young. In, sure. in terms of, yeah. But my mom pushed and pushed and, you know, after treatment, I just, I also had this intuition of, of how to continue. Um, I didn't, I didn't go down the AA route. You know, I was kind of taught that in the, the treatment center that I was in. And, and I actually, learned about the steps and read about it and, you know, and, and actually did a couple, but it, it just didn't resonate with me in a, in a way that it was going to be sustainable. And so I moved to LA. I'm from San Francisco, moved to LA and um, got an apartment and I literally wrote 
a treatment plan in my mind for myself. Went to bed at the same time, got up, routine, boundaries, communicating boundaries to the people in my life, being very transparent about and feeling also empowered that I made this choice. This was my choice. I made it. No one's telling me I can't drink. I'm choosing not to drink. And I never felt more free and more empowered in my life. And, you know, and I know it's really hard for my clients. I have a private practice and I work with clients day to day. They feel like it's, it's a lack of will in, in some regard, or they feel like they're, they can't do it. You know, that they, they, you know, kind of are looking at it like they're missing out on something versus gaining something new. So just the reframing, I think was really helpful. And I, I just did it by myself, really. Yeah. I did have a lot of guidance from books that I read on Buddhism and Thich Nhat Hanh and, you know, I kind of dove into certain aspects of learning other cultures and diff- different things that I, I'm just a reader. I like to to learn, but but really for me, it was about just making sure I had self care, um, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual in my daily practice. That was it. So you know, I started running and I became a runner. I, I never ran a day in my life before I got sober. And my brother said to me come run a block. I'm like, no, 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 I can't run a block. I don't want to run. I, I just walk, you know, I'll do this. I'll do do other things, but not running. And I did it. I, I ran a block the next day. I was like, eh, put my shoes by my bed, got up in the morning, same time, went for another run, two blocks, three blocks, a mile, three miles, a half marathon, a marathon, literally. And it saved my life. Every day I'd run, you know, 30, 40 minutes, but it was something where I could hear my my breathing. I could think and process things. I was outside in nature. I was moving physically and getting stronger. So it kind of tapped into all those things of, that I needed for self-care right away in the morning. And I swear my brain started changing. And I just started to become proud of myself. And again, that's where the affirmations came in. At the end of each run, I started just to telling myself, you got this one more block. You're so strong. And I started to love myself and talk myself through things and change my thought habits. And I think that's kind of what started to change the trajectory of my life forever. And so that's what I why I wrote my book Rewired, because it was more about that kind of rewiring that helped me. I wonder if like the very loving nature of your parents somehow was internalized and was able to sort of relanguage itself with you talking to you in a way that sort of kept you kept okay. you going or You're something. Right. I- I think it did because I still, when I talk to my kids, my mom was just over for dinner tonight and, you know, it's always sweetie, honey. And, you know, that's just the way, you know, now I, when I see my kids, it's, I, I talk the same way. And it's just funny how now I see that it makes such a difference. Like even when I hear her say, what, honey, you know, what, sweetie, it's instead of what, you know, even though she says what like that, she's from New York, it, but it's, it's that plus honey plus sweetie, you know, and it, that's, that's it's, right. it softens it a Grace little bit. Grace and grit. Grace and grit. It's always good. Grace and grit. Yeah. Okay, so so you're saying that what happened for you, you didn't turn to meetings, you somehow there was some template or something blueprint inside of you for how to pull yourself out of this and find your way to another way of being, which you call rewired. So you've written a number of books around mm-hmm. the concept of rewired. How do you define rewired? What does that even mean for you? I think it just means changing changing the way that you think honestly it's just changing you know and it's not like neuroscience i'm not a neuroscientist or you know but but i really think that when we start to change the relationship we have with our own thoughts everything changes period you know the way that i even look like what lens i look through um and look at 
my relationship with alcohol, like the minute I was more empowered and felt like it was a choice, everything changed. Right? Someone told me I couldn't drink when I was trying to stop drinking. And someone kept telling me, my mom, you shouldn't drink. You know what? It's not good for you. You act like you're, you know, you act like you're very emotional and they would, you know, anyone tells you, you can't do something right. You're going to come from a place of feeling like defiant in a sense, even, especially when you're not a great place in your life. So for me, just changing my relationship with my own thoughts, the way I spoke to myself, the way I looked at the world, having those tools of reframing, that is what I call rewiring to me. That's that's kind of what it is when I'm talking about recovery. I have some experience, um, not with addiction personally, but with people with addictive patterns. Um, and even in my own attempts to alter my thinking at various stages along the way, um, what worked best for me was, to me, the thoughts were symptomatic of a deeper issue and problem. And so for me, if I were to use the term rewiring, it begins and ended for me within the emotional body, not so much the cognitive um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, structures. Mm-hmm. And so the spiritual world uses the term monkey mind, and I always thought that was a bit bypassy. I prefer the term monkey heart because... I felt when I cleared the emotional debris that I was holding, whether it was grief or anger or whatever that was, discharged it somatically through the body. Because I eventually found that talk therapy and anything cognitive, I mean, you know, I could make sense of stuff. Mm-hmm. But for me, excessive. The first thing I ever wrote that came through me and I wrote on a wall, my apartment in Toronto was excessive analysis perpetuates emotional paralysis. So. I had a powerhouse mind. I mean, I survived by my wits. My mind is still relatively intact. But I I never seemed to really be able to change anything within my thinking. And I agreed with you. I agree with you that changing the thinking is extremely important if we're going to change Mm -hmm. our lives. But I couldn't do that without changing my feelings. So it sounds like you're, and I think one of the reasons I'm intrigued by your model, your Mm -hmm. teaching Um, And then the notion of affirmations, which I'd like to get to if we have time, is that it feels like you're not excluding the healing of the emotional body as something that changes your thinking. You're talking about other things. You're talking about the sort of benefits, the transformative benefits Mm -hmm. of thinking differently, like almost Mm -hmm. in a mantric sense. And, and of course, acting, if I'm understanding you correctly, acting in a way that's congruent with the change in thinking so that it lands, that has sort of a somatic behavioral action-oriented component to it, which I totally get. For you, I mean, maybe this, maybe you, you maybe you're, do you identify yourself as a serious trauma survivor, independent of or before the alcohol phase? You know, when you were saying that, I, I, I have a question of just, just curious of what, what kind of emotional pain that you identified that you were going through? Because I sure. think it's, well, I'd love to to know this, number one. But number two, what I was, was going to say is the most traumatic thing that I could think of that, that happened, right, is when someone sits down, what would happen? It was just my parents' divorce. And it's, you know, not to not to minimize it, but it, it was a very upsetting time. And it wasn't handled probably right. And I was put in the middle more times than I could count, up at night, anxious and nervous. I had to choose who, who to go with for this holiday or that holiday. And, you know, I was always put in the middle. I'm the oldest of, of two younger brothers. And and also, I was just a very mature child. I was five years old. I felt like I was, you know, eight and eight. I felt like I was 12, 12, I was 20. It just, that's the way I've, my uh, trip here has been so far. That's just, maybe I haven't even done enough work on myself 
somatically to, to kind of tap into that. I feel like for me, what helped me heal was more of the, and, and obviously self-acceptance and self-love, which I feel in my body is, is what helped change me and does every day. So I do have to still connect with that, but I don't know if like what you're saying about in terms of trauma that I had to heal the child within that was so upset and despondent during my parents' divorce, you know, something like that. I, I you know, never did any kind of hands-on work around that. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you know, there's a lot there. Like it's, I mean, usually when someone turns to an addictive phase, it's yeah. because there's something they don't want to feel. Part of the way you described it was, which makes sense to me, it's very, I think is very interesting, is that it actually allowed you to feel certain things that you couldn't feel in your right. normal waking consciousness. So that's really interesting. Um, but the question of what we're holding in our bodies, many of us can be very effective and successful in the world, but really hover above a whole layer of material that we don't even know exists that if we access it, we'll completely transform our lens on everything about ourselves and our reality. I know this because I spent years in, in talk therapy and it was very helpful and a lot of sense making. I learned the word boundaries and just a startling experience of coming from a unboundary Jewish home. We had doors on the rooms, but really in every other way, there really were no boundaries. So I think right. and then when I started to do body centered work and kind of crack open and breathe into my lungs and grab a baseball bat and hit a foam cue, which is sort mm. of bioenergetics model, I was really quite startled to find out there was a whole other world going on inside of me related yeah. to these early life experiences and other experiences that I didn't know about. Um, yeah. And absolutely to build my life from nothing and to become okay. whatever it is that I've become and whatever yeah. I've been able to accomplish, so much of it had to do with internal affirmations I mean, being absolutely directed and driven, writing my goals on the wall every day, literally in shock and checking them off at the end of the day to acknowledge to myself that I had accomplished those things, okay. fighting for my right to the light, pushing up against abuses of power and authority, which sent a message behaviorally and action oriented way to my inner child that they were protected finally, because mm -hmm. I was now a feisty, active warrior in the world. Yeah. So there's a lot of parts to... There are so many parts to the building of your consciousness and the sturdying and stabilizing of yourself and the achievement of these kinds of profound goals that you've achieved in your life. And so I'm always interested in how people did it. Um, mm -hmm. And then also, and you, you, know, you brought it up, but I, I didn't. But what may still lay within you that has yet to be attended to and the beauty of that, if there is anything there, is that when that gets revealed and exposed and transformed, then I think we move to the next level of bringing our offering to the world and becoming more complete beings. I mean, it's, uh, I think a lot of this comes down to how we define success. Like I think that if, if I define success as, you know, being able to be economically gratified in the world and defined to be successful in my community and all the rest of that. But if I define success as wholeness, you know, presence as a whole being experienced, then I feel like I have to access all of the parts of me that could be holding stuff or to clear enough of the stuff to be able to sit down at the table feeling more integrated and intact. Yes, I agree with you. And I think that no matter what, I encourage people just to start because like you said, there's so many layers, like, you know, just if you still feel there's some work to do, that's fine. That's life. You know, we, we should keep, keep, keep and keep and keep every, every, keep every on keeping on, keep on keeping on. 
Yeah. Every day, every week. Right. But, but again, like I, like I, I think now I'm coming into this place. It's funny that you said this tonight because I feel like in terms of inner child and I have a, a therapist friend who does a lot of work on inner child. And I always thought like, Oh, inner child, you know, but it was because I didn't want to see that there was a little girl that was in pain. Right. Or there was, there was, there was something still there. Right. But I didn't, it didn't at the time when I was first getting sober. Now, flash forward 15 years later, I, I see the significance of, for me, at least in terms of feeling worthy. And I think that core wound of worthiness was something I definitely have had to deal with and still do. And, and, and that obviously that's married to like your confidence a little bit and what you choose to allow to go on in your life. And again, back to boundaries and uh, people pleasing and, you know, not speaking up for what I really need because I am, I am, I am a people pleaser. I mean, I, I've gotten much better through the years as I've worked on myself, but wanting to be liked, wanting to be, you know, whatever that is, that is kind of what I've now realized is the last kind of step of just breaking through and how, I don't know, we'll see, but at least I'm, the awareness is there and maybe there's even more, but, but I'm just saying, I think just having that awareness is a good start sometimes for people. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think that all of this, you just named a whole bunch of very yeah. familiar human issues and patterns that you are also experiencing. I don't think everything emanates from big T traumas. I mean, I think yeah. that these yeah. are relational patterns. These are ancestral patterns. Sure. This is the generational shtick yeah. that we were exposed to. We have Jewish history to consider yeah. in our case, which is you know, significant. Everybody has a sociological context that impacts on how they feel and how they function and how they relate. And mm -hmm. there's just so many layers of work to be done. If our goal is to reach a place of something we could call wholeness, which is yeah. forever debated. You know, yeah. And Jeff, too, one thing, though, too, I, what I've noticed in, in, instead of the, the traumas, the big T, the little T, is, is the narratives, like the, the big N. I mean, really, to me, that was a breakthrough moment when I started to learn about narratives and to, to realize, wow, this was the message I got about being a woman in my house, mm -hmm. the way my father was, right? So what he said about women was he was the only man that I had in front of me, right? So what he said is how I thought all men thought about women. Um, so I had to kind of recorrect that. His, my father's choices in terms of his behavior set me up to have certain trust issues, trusting men in certain ways. So again, it's like, I, you know, there's there's so much that we have to look at of what, why, why am I, why am I scared of this? Or why, why do I have low confidence in this way? Or what, you know, how come, right. I think in these ways and to really, you know, rewrite your narratives, rewrite your story, rewrite how you want to feel, how you want to, you know, act and see where they came from, because I think it's very helpful for people. Absolutely. So affirmations, something yes. you, you have a book of affirmations and, you yes. know, and I, I mean, can define affirmations in all kinds of ways. And I certainly used affirming statements and narratives internally to push me forward at various times. I like quotes, quotes. Mm -hmm. I love quotes. Yeah. And I, I like that some of my quotes are people put them on their fridges to keep them going. And I, I guess in a way that's kind of an affirmation, but you know, then I sort of was exposed to the Louise Hay new age, what I came to call the new cage movement version of affirmations, which felt, which felt, and not to say that they can't work. I mean, they can work if someone says they work. It's not for me to say they don't work. But, you know, they felt sort of bereft of depth and, and, and meaning and, and mm. uh, 
groundedness and sensibility, certainly in the medical area when people get sick for all kinds of reasons, and it was made into a very simplistic, new age, often shaming affirmation structure. For you, give me some examples, if you could, of affirmations that have helped you through your mm-hmm. difficult times and that you are still actively utilizing in your daily life. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think they've changed as, you know, every day is different. But um, I know early on, like very simple ones, like you are strong or, you know, you have a voice. Usually it was something to do around the language of it that was helpful for me. So just to give you a sense of like when I was talking about empowering language, empowering words of I choose everything was I choose, right? I choose to have good boundaries today. I choose to bring love into this world today, or I choose to allow love in my life, whatever those, those are. Even when I'm talking to my clients about communication, speaking from I statements is very powerful. And, and like when I, why I wanted to write about affirmations, because I don't think people realize how much more intentional you can be with language and the language that you use, you speak in the language that goes up on up here, because we mindlessly say things like blanket statement, cognitive distorted ways of thinking, like, you know, I'll never do this. I'll always be that. I'll never be able to do that. I'm, you know, I'm always going to be a procrastinator. And to stop that, but there has to be an awareness first that's going on, that these cognitive distortions are happening. And so that's where you counteract that with affirmation. So there's much more than just, oh, you are beautiful, you know, blabbering on about, you know, different three, three, uh, you know, three worded affirmations, but it's really like tapping into the center of your soul, mm-hmm. right? And being aware of what do I need to counteract today? You know, what what is coming up that is preventing me from living my best life in this moment or that's, that's, that's give, giving me anxiety or that's stressing me out? And that's where I formate. This is for, for me, at least. This is how I come to my affirmation of the day of what I need to hear from myself. Nice. That makes well, sense. It, it sounds like you're notion of affirmations is coupled with a very grounded and important notion of, of action. Um, yeah. So if somebody's saying, I have a voice, I have a voice, I have a voice, I have a voice, yeah. but not utilizing their voice is not particularly helpful. I mean, unless they need to keep saying it until they're ready to utilize their voice, that's totally fine. That, and that could be, yeah. But it sounds like you're affirming and then you are sort of asserting at the same time and proving to yourself that the thing you're leaning into with the affirmation is actually factually true, true. in an action-oriented sense. So Absolutely. that feels like a message that um, I can get behind a lot okay. than the affirmation alone, which I understand can still be yeah. under, especially difficult where there's real duress essential. But I think for me, I needed to prove to myself that the shit I was saying inside of my head was mm-hmm. true by actually going out and doing something. And then be sort of becoming the affirmation rather than the affirmation existing as something independent of me. Right. Well, but you know, like, so, so for instance, when I was very early on in my sobriety and I was starting to run and I lived in this little neighborhood, Brentwood in, in LA and I didn't, my, my, my identity, I didn't see my, well, I started to see myself as a healthy woman, but not the way that somebody one day I was at a, this coffee shop that I always went to after my run. And this lady says to me, I see you every morning. You're that runner girl. And I started to cry like tears because she she called me a runner. She saw me as a healthy human being who was running. And that's from where I came a year before was 
I mean, I get, I still get chills because it, it changed everything. I was like, I could change who I am and people are seeing me different. And that pride, at least what I felt, I felt proud. And I felt like, you know, from, from that experience, I remember some guy went on a date with, he walked out once I told him I didn't drink alcohol. He said, you know, I don't think this is going to work. And I remember he left and I was like, good. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Now in retrospect, very good. But I remember that moment, if someone wasn't working on themselves in that moment, that could be, you know, like, what? Oh, I'll never, you know, I'll you could never you could manifest a man if I don't drink or something. Right. And all the negative self-talk and what is all this worth? Why should I even get sober and blah, 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 whatever could come up. Right. But in that moment, because of that comment from that lady running, I remember thinking to myself, this affirmation, I said, you're a healthy woman. You're a strong and healthy woman and the right people will come in your life. And that was it. And I walked out of there like, you. you know, forget this guy. But it was because I said the right people will come into your life. That was my, you know, for the, at least that stage when I was dating people, that was a, that was right. a helpful affirmation, right? Amazing. There's so many, there's so, there's so many periods of my life where I felt like certain mantras, affirmations helped me, really helped me to my core, you know? Yeah, no, this is good for me to hear this. I feel as though you're like an aff- you're like an internal affirmation machine. So you have an experience <laughs> and you see you could go in the direction of the negativity, internalize the negative messaging, like his messaging at the restaurant, the right. bar. But instead, what you do is you learn, this is how you survive, thrive, and grow. You're going to convert that immediately into a learning and affirmation yeah. And not not just a realization that, oh, these kinds of people aren't for me, but then what it is you're going to manifest and then going out there and ensuring and insisting upon that yeah. manifestation in the way that you function in the world. You're not this doesn't sound airy fairy like you're saying, no. change your thoughts. The universe will send you. You're doing you're, you're action oriented. You're actually moving into the world with that affirmation within you, not as something separate from you, and then making sure that you live up to the standard that it's promoting for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, it's beautiful. And and so that woman says to you, you're a runner. And then you take that in as, oh, this is affirmation of the Mm -hmm. fact that I have now a new identity and way of being that is actually visible in the world. And I am therefore farther and farther removed from who I used to be the person that I don't want to be in this lifetime. And I remember with work, I had, I had a, I had a lady who was, she was overseeing, you know, my hours getting my uh, addiction counseling license. And she said to me, you're the most consistent. You're on time every morning. You're the most consistent person. I consistent. Wow. And I am, I am a very consistent, but I wasn't back in those days, you know? So it was all these these early, you know, moments of, of kind of hanging on to, to positive, I guess, not that anybody needed to define me outside of myself. I I think I was proud of myself too. And every night before my head hit the pillow and I tell my clients this, go over all the things you're proud of every single day that you did. If it's brush your teeth, take a shower, make your bed, stay so whatever it is, I want you to go over it. And in the morning too, a moment of gratitude is always what helped me. And so again, creating, I think having these practices and making into a discipline, like these were non-negotiables. This was not a negotiable thing for me. This was my life or death. I mean, seriously, I remember my mom one night, she, she made dinner really late. It was like a nine o'clock reservation, bunch of family. And I said, this was early on too. And I was very serious about keeping myself safe. So it was, I said, I don't want to go eat at nine o'clock at night. And she's, you know, and so they gave me a hard time about it. And I remember just making a boundary and, you know, saying like, 
I got so upset because no one understood. Like, this is me trying to fight for myself. Like, this is what helps me, you know? Now I can go eat at nine. I, you know, my life has changed. I'm not so structured. But I think in the beginning, it's really what saved me and what kept me on this path for so long. And it not only just being disciplined in my mind, but with, you know, in regards to sleep, in regard to what I was putting in my body, my nourishment, my movement, everything was very much planned and it, it was helpful for me. Well, it sounds like you you had to go rigid in order to establish, firmly establish yeah. a new way of being before yeah. you could come back a little bit more to the middle and have a little bit more flex yeah. or valuability because you know now that you're not going to go back to those old patterns. I'm safe. Exactly. Exactly. Safe. You've made yourself safe. Look what you did. Isn't that yeah. beautiful? beautiful your relationship to alcohol now how do you feel when you see it do you Mm. do you drink ever at all now and then Mm. casually no 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 drinking but my my husband drinks so it's in our home and i don't i don't feel threatened by it i don't feel like it doesn't belong when i lived by myself for the first nine years of my sobriety um i didn't have it in my home i didn't there was no reason I didn't really invite people over. So there was no reason for it to be in my, in my face. So this was, this actually was a shift when I moved in with him and was like, Whoa, this is back in my, my room again. And, and I did a lot of soul searching around it and, you know, I'm fine. Even like very early on in my sobriety, I went to weddings. My dad drinks still, everyone drinks around me. It's, it's fine. It's my choice. You know, people ask like, it's 15. Like I met a new neighbor recently and she says, you don't drink. If it's been 15 years, I'm sure you could have one glass of wine. And I said, you're right. You know, I'm, I'm sure I can have one glass, but I, I don't want to even allow something that would have a, a 1% chance of coming back and ruining my life. Like there's no point because I already know what it is to enjoy life without it. And I already know what it is to love without it and to have children without it. And all these things, I don't need to add it back in my life. It's not going to add any value to my life really. So I don't allow that voice to come in, even though other people now don't see me. They don't know me from that at all. And I and I am not that same person, you know. Well, it sounds like you. Um, well, there's no question. Let me re- yeah. language that um, you fought for your right to the light beautifully. And thank you. I've established an entirely different and new way of being with so much to look forward to. So this is um, mm. the art of self-creation. You've modeled yeah. it to us in your own way. I mean, this is why I'm really happy to talk, have talked about this because you did it in a way that in some ways, but not always, was very different from my way and from the way some others. Was it? Know. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I parts of it for sure were that, but I really, really coupled it with the clearing of the emotional debris because I found that the more debris I cleared, the more mm-hmm. space I had inside for my path to reveal itself and the more energy I had to bring to the development of the next stages of my life. And mm-hmm. that may have been because I was carrying more debris than you or other people were. I don't know. Um, I'd, I'd I, love I, to know how you did that though, too. I mean, I'd love for you to come and talk in another space and time, but mm-hmm. no. And I, cause I think we learn from each other is the point. I, I don't even know, you know, you're not being specific, so I don't know what you're talking about, but, I, but that's the thing is as somebody that, tries to help other people heal. And obviously I believe in healing ourselves. This is why I think it's fantastic to connect with other people like yourself that have done the work and that could share the how too. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that, you know, I think for people in recovery, it depends on so many things, but I think that somatic or body centered psychotherapies like bioenergetics or 
core energetics or somatic experiencing now. And some of the work with IFS, internal family systems, particularly now that I think Dick is integrating it with body-centered psychotherapies, I think that these are really valuable tools for their toolbox and not for everybody. But I think for some people, they probably won't be able to make much progress without them because they won't be able to excavate the material that they're holding, the darkness that's held in the body. And if they can't clear the darkness that's held in the body, they may never really have a experience of the kind of light that you and I are Mm -hmm. talking about. And I think in some ways emanate, right? Mm. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, it's not to say that someone who doesn't do that hasn't found their way. It's preposterous, but, but it's helpful to, um, do you, do you, do you like music? Yeah. Music's been a huge part of my healing journey, my creative journey. I write to music, um, Mm -hmm. I write to mantra, I write to chant, I write to Van Morrison. Lately I've been writing a lot to Nick Cave and, He's been keeping me company. And yeah, I think also for those of us who either need to be isolated for periods of time as part of our transformational journey or who just are, um, Mm -hmm. obviously, and of course, music can become our family and our best friend and absolutely essential. I I don't think I would have become whatever I've become without being able to listen to some of the great music people. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. In my book, Rewired, I I wrote a chapter on healthy solitude because I feel like it was it was the best time in my life. Those first two years that I when I changed my life to to be by myself, to to Mm. learn how to I literally would go to movies by myself, go out to dinner by myself. Everything was by myself and I would never been happier. And going from a place where I was being distracted all the time and one thinking that's the way to be to, to finding that time. So enjoyable was great. There's a great song by Alex Ebert, you know, who's the lead singer of Edward Sharp and the magnetic zeros. It's Mm. called truth. And he says, my darkness is shining. Your darkness is shining. You have to hear the song. It's called truth by Alex Ebert. I'll find it. after. It reminded me of what you were just saying. You'll like it. I mean, a lot to be said. I agree with you for what I call solitude on this transformative path, because, you know, I know a a number of wonderful people who just never, ever, ever spend time alone connecting to their soul center. And Mm -hmm. as a result, for the most part, have very little idea why they're here in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you access that information if you're always interfacing with something outside of yourself. You know, I I know. I mean, it's it's you know, I'm not at all by myself as much as I'd like. Now I think I I thank God I had that experience because it taught me a lot. But yeah, it's it's essential to get quiet and it's just essential to get to know yourself and to feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it's good company. Good company. Thank you, Eric Erica Spiegelman for um thank you Jack so blessing much. us with your presence today. Thank, oh, you. thank you so much. My honor. My honor. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me.